Hello, this is Ellie Kushner, and you're listening to Dancewell Podcast. It's 5 o'clock in the morning here in New York City, and I'm about to call Australia. I've never done this. I've never done a 5 a.m. interview, but um, if you know what's happening at the Australian Ballet, you know they're worth it. Um, I'm going to call Dr. Jason Lamb. Jason was originally a professional dancer and artist before he, in his words, collapsed a lung and had to retire from performing. He decided that medicine sounded like a fun career (laughs) after a scrubs binge in hospital. But after a couple years in plastic surgery and realizing medicine was entirely unlike scrubs, he completed his GP training. He is passionate about healthcare for artistic athletes and is the Crichton Dance Medicine Fellow with the Australian Ballet, where he brings his unique experience as a dancer to performing arts healthcare. He's a medical educator and also works with Carlton VFLW and covers combat sports. He is involved in research and has presented and published widely. uh, Dr. Jason Lamb says outside of medicine, He has a newborn child, rides his mountain bike with more enthusiasm than skill, um, has an Etsy store featuring custom dinosaur-based jewelry, and makes dreadfully pretentious short films. (laughs) So I'm excited to call Jason. We're going to be talking about conservative healthcare, which is something that... um, the Australian Ballet has been talking about and working towards and promoting quite a bit. Um, So without further delay, let's call Jason. Buckle your seatbelts. On this episode, nutrition, life coach, dance and performance, psychological training. And today you are in for traction. Hi. Hello. This is Ellie Kushner. And this is Marissa Schaefer from Dancewell Podcast. Dancewell Podcast. All right, so I'm here with Dr. Jason Lamb. Thank you so much for doing this all the way in Australia after a long day of work. Ah, thanks so much for having me. I um, feel a bit of an imposter on your podcast, uh, but very glad to, to be chatting to you. <laughs> Did you say an imposter? Oh, yeah. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Um, so we're talking about conservative care. Could you just start by explaining what that is um, for anyone who doesn't know and probably for me who only kind of knows? Um, I guess we actually want to relabel. It's not so much conservative care as non-surgical care. Um, I think sometimes the the term conservative care uh, for patients uh, can sometimes feel like we're not doing anything. Um, it sound, sometimes feels like the lesser option and we're trying to really push the idea that it's it's not the lesser option. It's not a cop out. This is actually you know an evidence based um, best practice for um, for treating people's injuries. Um, so yeah, we're trying to shift away from the idea of it being conservative care to we're managing it non surgically. Um, and you know I'm sure you know there's a lot of public perception that. Um, yeah, you heal with steel. You know, there's a you see a pathology on imaging, whether it's torn this or chipped that or worn that, and that if you fix that, then that will solve your problem. And I think over the last 
five, ten years, you know, there's increasing research which shows that that's not the case. Yeah, yeah, I um, I teach kinesiology, and so I'm not, you know, totally up on all the research, but I know the research on um, disc issues and labral tears, mm. and so we talk about that a lot and trying to explain that, you know, the difference between correlation and causality and um, that dysfunctional movement may be the source of both your pain and your labral tear, yeah. <laughs> for example. Exactly. Um, so using, using that maybe as an example, because um, I think before you had your newborn child, I used to see you chime in more on Facebook. <laughs> um, yeah, the free time has, has dropped off. <laughs> it was often when um, questions were asked about labral tears and labral tear surgeries, you would often chime in and explain that um, Australian ballet has been successful for a number of years um, treating labral tears non-surgically. So could you maybe use that as an example, if it's a good one, or anything else that seems appropriate to you, to sort of walk us through what this experience of non-surgical care looks like? Um, well, it's really spearheaded by um, Dr. Sue Mays, um, who did the, the research on hips, um, and it's uh, an imaging of hips and correlation with pain, of which there isn't any. Um, uh, but yeah, so for the last 10 years, we've really done no hip surgeries um, and also posterior impingement, which is a really common um, injury seen in dancers. I think we haven't done any or maybe only one or two um, in the last in the last decade. Um, and that's really come, ac uh, we've managed to achieve that um, through uh, integrated um, strength and conditioning program and a very active uh, non-surgical management of these conditions. Um, and also, you know, we're very lucky and have um, got great support from the artistic staff and so we've got a culture where people come up with niggles early and so we can get onto it a lot quicker and earlier than otherwise. So early intervention is sort of a, a key piece in that. Is, is that always the case, do you think? But or um, can things linger for a long time and still be sort of addressed non-surgically? It still can. It's a lot easier earlier on. Um, and luckily for us, you know, um, dancers are very well aware of their body, so they usually have a good idea when something's not feeling right. Um, and so it's a really good opportunity to get in there before um, it becomes an entrenched problem, you know, whether it's a weakness or whether it's a technique issue. Um, trying to get onto that early is, is very helpful. Um, you know, the longer it goes on, then, you know, it starts becoming that chronic pain sort of problem, you know, with, you know, uh, the central sensitization and all these other things which start playing in, the psychology starts playing a a bigger role and becomes much more difficult to um to manage break through that yeah yeah exactly you know it becomes a cycle and a pattern um still can but it's just it's a, a lot easier if you can kind of nip it in the bud right um off the cuff you mentioned dr sumace who's is, who's a physio and she's your head of um what is it artistic health at, at australian ballet is that yeah right? Um, and she, so she's a physio. Mm -hmm. Um, what is your role as an, as an MD 
in this non-surgical process because it seems, you know, there's a lot on the conditioning coaches and the physio, which I think is easier for us on the outside to understand. But what does the MD do um, in this non-surgical process? Um, look, it's quite varied. So we actually have, uh, until recently, we had three doctors. So we have uh, Dr. Andrew Garnham, who's the sports physician. So he um, probably, he takes the, the bulk of the um, consults for, for the dancers. Um, we have a general practitioner, uh, Dr. Vicky Higgins, who's actually just recently retired. She kind of looked after the not musculoskeletal issues. Um, and I'm kind of in between. So I'm kind of training uh, to become a sport and exercise physician specialist. Um, so my current fellowship is I've got a um, general practice uh, ticket. Um, I also have a master's of sports medicine. And my position with the Australian Ballet is really... Um, kind of learning from and gaining exposure with the guidance of uh, Dr. Andrew Garnham and Dr. Sue Mays and um, Sophie Emery and, you know, all the other great people we have on our team. So I'm, I'm very much in a learning uh, space uh, with uh, the company. I do consult as well. Um, so some of my particular um, expertise is uh, on, I'm particularly good with hand injuries because I used to do plastics, um, you know, wound management, um, and skin conditions, um, so dermatology. So I, I kind of straddle the two other doctors. So I, I do medical stuff. Um, I do mental health, which is a, a, a massive um, uh, piece of the puzzle, piece of the puzzle um, and, a, and a heavy burden in the performing arts um, and also into the musculoskeletal um, realm as well. Um, so I'm also, I am going to be, undertaking the fellowship of sports and exercise physicians which i'm starting next year um to further increase my skills in that area great um also another um follow-up so we we've seen i've seen the studies you know they've made it all the way to the new york times like to the pop media <laughs> about the capacity for equal results um from surgical and non-surgical approaches to certain things like herniated discs, for example. Mm. Um, in your experience at, at the Australian Ballet, would you say that we could go further and even say that there are better outcomes with non-surgical approaches? Um, or, or is it just safer to say that we can see equal outcomes? I think it really depends on the injury you're talking about. There are certain things which need a surgical repair um but equally there are an awful lot of things which uh which don't so i think it's just horses for courses really um mm -hmm. as to yeah I, I i don't want to say that a blanket rule that one is better than another a better choice right? yeah it really depends on so many things like the type of injury the the patient their requirements at any one time um, yeah, so there's a lot of things to take into account. Um, probably, yeah, the goals of the patient or... Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I even will talk with students about, like, yeah, if you're, if you're a working mother of, with three small children and, you know, you might, going to, going to PT three times a week 
for a year and a half might not be a reasonable option. So even lifestyle things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what? But dancers tend to be a very compliant population with um, with time built into their lives to manage their bodies, right? So that makes them a good, that probably typically makes them good candidates for non-surgical treatment. Yeah, it's an absolute, uh, it's often, yeah, an absolute dream working with dancers. Um, I, I obviously work with non-dancers as well. And yeah, the um, the guys are great. I mean, they'll do, they usually have a problem of getting them to do just what we tell them because they'll usually try and, right. <laughs> and throw in a few 40 extras. 40 is not twice as good as 20. Yeah, so we have more of that issue whereas in general population, you know, I'm pretty chuffed if they do it once or twice a week. Um, uh, and and because, you know, we've been working with the company or Sue's been working with the company for so long, there's a, a there's good acceptance of this non-surgical um, management. Um, so there's a good understanding and expectation set up um, it's definitely challenging uh, in general public because a lot of, yeah, a lot of people still think that, you know, getting the thing cut out or trimmed or cleaned up is is the answer. What do you what do you think perpetuates that in the general population? Um, do you think it's? I mean, the field of surgery maybe has contributed itself to that a little bit there's a little bit of a is it safe to say there's an ego in surgery um oh absolutely and and um I mean it's also of course just patients sort of looking for what seems like a quick and efficient fix but it's also some kind of fixation on like our societal value of medicine as magic or something um is it why is that is it hospitals and insurance companies looking for you know, to pay their bills or I don't know. What do, what do you think perpetuates that notion that surgery is a good solution or the best solution? I think it makes, it makes intuitive sense for people, you know, and we've certainly made it worse by imaging everything. And so we're seeing all this stuff. And then, so it's an easy draw. It's like, Oh, I've got a bulging disc. It's squishing a nerve. Therefore X, if that gets cut out, then I'll be fixed. Um, right. you know, you know, I did, I used to work as a plastic and reconstructive surgery registrar. So I did a lot of surgery. Um, there certainly is a, uh, a, a surety of what you're doing. And I guess part of that is, um, you, uh, that's the personality. Um, and also to be able to do those operations, you need a certain degree of confidence, um, of, of what you're doing. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, I think a big part is also just in public media. Like you look at all the elite sportsmen, you know, Andy Murray or whoever, you know, they have problems and they get surgery and they're fixed. Um, I, I can't remember a time when someone said, oh, I had a hip problem and I didn't do surgery and now I'm back at the top of my game. Like that's not a, right, that's right. not a common narrative. Um, so yeah, there and so I think there is a bit of mystique and magic and power of the surgeon and of of surgery. Um, yeah, it um, it's also just thinking about what you said about the elite athletes. Um, it's sort of like nobody reports on all the planes that land safely every day. Yeah. you know, like just because those athletes 
don't talk about it doesn't mean that they're not also working with physios every week and you know preventing things from becoming surgical issues and um, working on things in a non-surgical way it's just doesn't make the news does it's it not, it's not as good a story I mean surgery always is it's kind of heroic Tom Brady went did his shoulder rotator cuff exercises today everyone yeah make the yeah. news <laughs> so we we um, we've talked about sort of the labral tears but what are some other examples of things, um, so we talked about discs and labral tears, what are some other examples of things that were once treated surgically but have been found more recently to resolve well through non-surgical care? I think, you know, posterior impingement. We're talking about the ankle there? Yeah, of the ankle. Um, I think in many cases can be managed um, very well non-surgically. Um, mm -hmm. I, I certainly remember when I was going through ballet school that that was yeah almost everyone was put putting their hand up to get their little os trigonum removed right. um <laughs> right exactly so i feel that poor little thing's been quite maligned um yeah other things like um not so much surgical repair but tendinopathy i mean people have been trying all sorts of magical injections shockwave therapy ultrasound all that um, and the work of um, Jill Cook and Rio, and that's really changed the way we manage them with our tendon rehab mm -hmm. protocols, and um, people have done really well with that. Um, so, uh, so that I think that's been a, a big advance in in management. Yeah. With the ostrogonum, yeah, I remember those were like a dime a dozen. Oh, um, yeah. We're probably sort of contemporaries. And um, yeah, um, what are the drawbacks if you use that surgery, for example? I mean, I remember people do feel a lot better in the long run, but that's a tough recovery. It's a, I remember it taking people a lot longer than they expected to get through that. So can you just talk about some of the... Um, risks in surgery that people might overlook or, or maybe not give enough credit to? I think that surgery sometimes is necessary as a pain relieving um, surgery if nothing else has really helped. Um, but I think people have unrealistic expectations that it will give them a glorious point. It tends not to do that. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, there's still, you know, scar tissue, um, which can come afterwards. So there, there can be significant, um, rehabilitation afterwards and whether it gets any better is a bit hit and miss. Um, yeah. And I mean, it's rare, but like when they did the sham surgery for, um, for knee arthroscopies, yeah, anytime you go under general anesthetic and have something done, it's not a risk-free procedure, whether it's anesthetic complications or, you know, DVTs and clots. Um, so even in that study where they did the sham arthroscopy, so a bunch of people who just got holes poked in their knees and then sewn up again, they had the complications just from that. So I think violating tissue always comes with... Um, comes with a degree of risk um, so it really needs to be carefully considered 
Can you can you tell me more about that um, sham study? I don't know if I know it. Oh, it's a really great study. Uh, it was done in Scandinavia where they looked at people with um, knee osteoarthritis. Um, I don't know if it was a big thing over in America, um, but in Australia at least we quite like cleaning up menisci. So you know, trimming it and giving it a bit of a clean up, <laughs> vacuuming around. Yeah. And- um, and so they did this beautiful uh, blinded study um, where they had people um, undergo sham surgery. So they got holes poked in their knees, and just but they didn't do any trimming. Um, and others got the trimming. Um, and it turns out that it comes out as a wash. There's no advantage to, um, to kind of tidying up in there. Wow, a placebo surgery. Yeah. That's a sham surgery. That I'm, That's uh, taken it really far. I love it. It's great. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't control for the fact that maybe there is a therapeutic benefit of, of yeah, the placebo surgery. Of, right, the, right, of right. going to hospital, being put to sleep, thinking you had something done. So, you know, so you, you, we couldn't, they couldn't control for that. So, you know, there possibly is a role for for the theatre of surgery, which can have have some effect. Um, but the actual act of, of tidying doesn't seem to do much. What are some of these things that really have to be treated with surgery? I mean, I know I had a young student who blew her knee out um, right before starting school, um, starting conservatory, and she went to somebody who does a lot of non-surgical approaches, and they said, oh, this needs surgery and it needs it this week, (laughs) you know? Um, and it was, first of all, I have to say it was great to be able to reassure her that if that doctor said that there's no doubt because he would not say that if at all possible. Um, but, but what are some of those things that you see where you say, no, this needs surgery promptly or even eventually? Yeah. It's usually the, the acute injuries, um, you know, um, we don't get many in dance, but, um, yeah, so acute fractures and, um, would probably be one of those, um, occasionally if you, acute tears of things sometimes do need, um, acute, uh, uh, surgery, so like, you know, um, you know, an acute rotator cuff in a young, fit person, um, you know, that's a good candidate for surgery. Very different for a 60-year-old. Um, mm. You know, um, you know not the way we've had one for a long time, but, you know, if you have an uh, anterior stress fracture which breaks, then, you know, you need an intermodality nail. That's just what has to happen. So, yeah, we don't get many. Yeah, in the case of this student, um, like I said, she was going to this doctor who we knew to be um, devoted to non-surgical approaches, so that made it clear for her. But how could a dancer otherwise know um, when they're told that they have something that does require surgery whether or not that is true? Oh, well, that's really tricky. <laughs> um <laughs> I mean, I have so many students who say, oh, all the things you listed, 
within in 2019 they're coming to me saying oh my you know I went to see this um ortho back home and he said I have to have surgery on this ostrogonum or this uh, labral tear or you know any of these things how how do we I I don't have an easy answer for that I mean I think it's it's worth trying to get an opinion from someone um from someone else um you know and if you can get recommendations uh, through iAdams or something like that um you know most people are super friendly and and will try and help out um so just getting a, a second opinion can be helpful or getting a second opinion from someone who is known to have a um a different uh viewpoint and it can be worth kind of hearing both sides and and trying to work uh, work through that sometimes i feel like also seeing a different type of practitioner you know like hmm. people tend to go to orthopedic surgeons because i don't know they've taken hold they have a good marketing campaign i don't know um and the orthopedic surgeon doesn't always know what is possible in the physical therapy realm it seems like you know they know the post-surgical physical therapy um but they don't always seem to know what's possible in that other field yeah. you know so it seems like sometimes going to a gp who has a broader perspective on it or directly to the pts and saying if i didn't have surgery would you be able to get me through this um yeah is that- yeah definitely i i think you know like i said you're know, getting an opinion from someone else um so yeah a physical therapist or um yeah or, or sports med um I think you guys have physiatry, which I haven't actually quite worked out what they do. Um, <laughs> They're like spine and nerve specialists. Okay. Um, we don't have that. But yeah, so someone from a, uh-huh. from a different school of thought can be really helpful. Um, I think, you know, in Australia, you know, sport and exercise physicians are probably a good, pers- uh, good person to see because they have a, generally a good understanding of both surgical and non-surgical management. Um, uh, yeah, and I think, um, yeah, it's, it's really tricky. Um, having, having someone that you trust and have a relationship with is also important. I mean, you can, you can go too far and be paralyzed by talking to 20 different people. Get, get two or three good opinions and leave it at that. Yeah. Um, cause yeah. Uh, yeah, there can be a, a danger in having far too many opinions that you can't sort through. Um, so, yeah. You talked about the prevalence of certain surgeries when you were a, a young dance student. Um, do you, can you talk a little bit more about your personal experience, um, both with having been a dancer and had a medical experience and then becoming a doctor and sort of what the trajectory um, over that time has been in terms of um, conservative care or non-surgical treatment? Uh, Look, when I was dancing, I was really lucky. I didn't really get any major injuries, so I never really came up against that question of whether I needed surgery or not. Um, So I I didn't have an Oz trigonum to blame my not that stellar feet on. (laughs) Um, yeah, 
um, I think, you know, one of the big changes um, that we're seeing is much more emphasis on strength, um, strength endurance rather than just pure flexibility. I mean, um, you know, as a young dancer, that was, we always thought that was, that's what you needed. You needed to stretch like crazy. Um, I think yeah, we've... stretch and just repeat the di- the moves over and over. Again. Yeah, um, and now we've got a much better understanding of the uh, muscular demands and how to train those, um, and a much more nuanced um, way of working with bodies. I mean, I still remember being, you know, having someone manhandle you so that you're not tucking and you flattened out the curve in your spine and that you've pulled your shoulders down as, you know, down to your hips and, you know, mm-hmm. like such a mm-hmm. rigid um, way of being taught. Whereas I think now we're much better at working with individuals and their bodies and how and looking at how we make the technique work for them um, in a way which is efficient and safe. And, and aesthetically pleasing. I mean, that is always a part of, of dance, but I think there's a lot more um, nuance and understanding of individual difference and physique and working with that. Um, so that's been, that's been great to, great to see. Um, I still hear distressing stories of students being made to sit on each other in splits. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but hopefully, you know, uh, through items and you know as, as the knowledge spreads we'll see less and less of that yeah I, it, I think um we're talking about in this conversation non-surgical approaches as being the contemporary approach you know um but is is that the case or was medicine initially non-surgical or i mean i know the history of medicine is not your specific specialty but um but has medicine always kind of been tied with surgery? Is this indeed a contemporary approach or, or is it um, sort of a return to something older? Um, I think, you know, the history of medicine um, was littered with terrible ideas and poor understanding. <laughs> uh, I mean, going back to the days where doctors wore bird masks and bled people, um, I think it has largely been quite interventional. Um, they would try poultices or leeches or bleeding and, you know, some of the, you know, early, early healers were all about, um, you know, taking action, taking and going action in and, and doing <laughs> stuff. Um, and you know, whether that was by cutting something or bleeding something or concocting some, horrible poultice um (laughs) it was largely you're doing something to someone um Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i think probably we didn't appreciate um how much could be done by um working with the patient and and their body to uh help it heal i mean the the body's an incredible um organism with tremendous powers of um of healing um and i think that that comes through in a lot of other cultures and other medical traditions um 
diet, meditation, um, physical activity. And I think, I think we're, um, becoming more accepting of that, um, of that, uh, type of treatment. I think also medicine has also possibly been a victim of its own success. I mean, talking about Western medicine, you know, um, you know, with the rapid pace of, you know, look, surgery is incredible now. Um, we can, you know, one of my um, old friends has just got a lung transplant. Like, that's commonplace. We can do incredible things, you know, with medicines. Um, you know, we can, you know, we're beating back certain cancers, you know. Infections tend not to kill people anymore. So we've had tremendous success with doing things so it's completely understandable that you know we have this trust and this belief that in the doing of things we can can beat whatever it is um so i think that certainly uh played a role um yeah yeah we, we even see that with you know as a fam like a gp you know so many people think that the antibiotic is what's going to fix them Right. Um, so yeah. So, and and they are They're a magical drug that they kill this organism but leave you alive. Like it's amazing. Um, but yeah, gradually changing that understanding that you know these are they have certain indications and they're absolutely brilliant for that. But they're not a cure all. They need to be selected and chosen carefully. Um, and I think that's what we're coming up with some of these um, physical injuries. Um, you know, as, as we're getting a more understanding of what drives pain um, and how multifaceted it is, so we're getting a better idea of how to manage those different facets from the mental side to the strength and conditioning um, and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, and oh, and the deprecation of the the single pathology that you can fix by surgery. Yeah, so that that idea that um, like injuries come about through these multifactorial situations, and just to address one factor isn't gonna address maybe everything that's contributing to that injury and resolve the issue. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Great, I think. Um, that covers my questions. Oh, cool. um, is there anything else that you want to tell us about the work you do or um, the experience of being a, a dancer doctor or um, any, anything else that seems relevant? Uh, and I have to say, I, I love working with dancers. I mean, so after, after I retired from dancing and going through med school, um, I did a couple of years in plastic surgery. And I love that. I love the the um yeah surgery i love it, it it is a lot of fun to do um and then but i really missed having my own art practice and i missed theater folk um so it's been lovely to go back um and be in a creative um environment with with yeah with performers i mean they're they're crazy but they're kind of my kind of crazy and i really miss that uh -huh. <laughs> um so it's been lovely working with them and the team at the australian ballet are just 
they're just phenomenal. I mean, they're absolutely world-class and they're so generous with their time and knowledge. So I'm so privileged to be able to spend time and, and learn from them. Um, probably a, a random aside, which came from my, my hand surgery work. So we recently um, finished a study, um, which we're going to publish soon, um, looking at uh, non-surgical management of complex finger fractures. So these are actually acute injuries with you know, shattered fingers and digits. Um, which are quite have always been quite challenging. They're very satisfying to fix surgically because you get these really cute um, mini Meccano sets to put it all back together. <laughs> and so you feel dreadfully clever putting them back together. But the outcomes just aren't <laughs> great because you've violated so much tissue because you have to strip off periosteum and put screws and plates. So the x-rays look fantastic, but they don't necessarily get great function. Um, and so we did this study comparing you know k-wiring and um plating versus our our non uh, non-surgical management which is a an early movement so we put apply traction to the finger um and move it very early within a couple of days and yeah we showed that you get better functional outcomes um with that than surgery x-rays don't always look as nice but you know, do you want a great looking x-ray or do you want a hand which makes a fist? So, right. Yeah. So I think, yeah, even, that's incredible. even in something like that, I think, you know, some of the non-surgical, um, management is, is kind of gaining some, some traction. But I have to say both options sound terribly painful to me. Um, <laughs> but the latter sounds like more immediate pain with, maybe less down the line but uh actually not too bad like pretty grueling uh challenging approaches to a difficult situation (laughs) yeah actually the traction is very well tolerated extremely well tolerated i was quite surprised um um once you kind of hold it out at length under some some tension Mm -hmm. actually remarkably remarkably good is that a study that people can, um, is it published? When I finally publish it, yes. Uh, no, so we've presented, uh, we've presented it at uh, the International Federation for Societies of Surgery of the Hand um, in Berlin just this year. Um, and I'm working on the actual paper now. So, um, To that end, uh, can people contact you or do you have oh, any um, please do. websites you'd like to share or emails you'd like to share? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm always happy if I can be of any assistance, I'm not sure what I can help you with. Um, but uh, I'm at um, uh, my website is www.drjasonlam.com.au. Um, so that's d r j a s o n l a m dot com dot au. Uh, I do have a Twitter handle, but I can't. I think it's Dr. Jason Lamb as well. Uh, maybe we can put that in the show notes. Uh, we absolutely can because uh, I I do so little Twitter um, I'll probably get that wrong um, and my email is drjasonlamb at gmail.com uh, except this one you have to spell doctor out in full so d-o-c-t-o-r jasonlamb at gmail.com and um, more than happy to have a chat and if I can be of any assistance thank you thank you so much we will put all of that in the show notes and um, 
I just can't thank you enough for being on the phone after um, a full day. And um, hopefully my 5 a.m. brain functioned decently. And um, can't wait to hear more from you. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah. On behalf of Marissa and myself, I, Ellie Kushner, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzy, and dancer-designer Katie Dean crafted our visual image. To those of you who have made this season possible by contributing to Dancewell, we are infinitely grateful. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Your donations help pay for our SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you too would like to make a donation to Dancewell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you like what you hear, we invite you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search Dancewell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website, www.dancewellpodcast.com. And if you have any questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.